This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Quote, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Close quote. So said Sir Winston Churchill on November 10th, 1942, after the first British victories over the Nazis, those being in North Africa. I was reminded of Churchill's words at a banquet for our local pregnancy care center. The Supreme Court decision in Dobbs overturned Roe v. Wade. It's true, and thanks be to God. But the speaker suggested, quoting Churchill, now is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. That is, the battle rages on and could be uglier than ever. With that in mind, this week and next, we'll focus on the theology and the philosophy of life. Beginning this week, as theologian Dr. Jeremy Holmes discusses the encyclical Humanae Vitae. Dr. Holmes, what was going on in the church in the world that led up to Paul VI's encyclical about human life? Uh, What was he concerned about? Well, in the encyclical, he names a few things that are on his mind. The new concern about population explosion. Uh, People are worried about what if the world, world gets overpopulated. Of course, this is not a new concern, but it's newly urgent in that day. There is the situation of many families, especially in developing countries, who are in such impoverished conditions when they have to go in and work that um, it's a great burden to them to have large families. Uh, So people are proposing birth control as a way to address this issue as well. There are other things that the the Pope does not mention in the encyclical. Uh, For example, the, um, the fact that back around 1930, the other Christian denominations had, by and large, abandoned the 2,000-year-old continuous tradition of Christians being against birth control. And the, the Catholic Church was really a lone holdout on this issue. And to many people, it appeared that this issue was one part of the Church's overall negative attitude towards the modern world. At Vatican II... The, the church consciously un- undertook a reflection on her relationship to the modern world. Let's think all together about how the church should relate to the modern world and make some readjustments. In that moment, when the church is read- formally revisiting her relationship to the modern world, lots of people were excited about the possibility that this issue, on which the church was the lone holdout, would itself also be revisited. It was not just that there was pressure out there in the world for contraception. The world had accepted contraception quite a while ago, but there was a new pressure within the church for the church to accept this now at last. The Pope grounded his arguments against artificial means of regulating parenthood, including abortion, uh, on doctrinal principles. What were those principles and how did he apply them? The very first principle he mentions uh, is the, the general principle that the church has authority to speak about moral matters. And he says, uh, when Christ entrusted the apostles with his teaching, he was entrusting the apostles, making the apostles and their successors, the bishops, authentic guardians not only of the gospel, 
but of the whole of natural law. Because if you violate natural law, you won't be saved. And so to, to be adequate teachers of the things we need to know regarding salvation, the church needs the authority to speak about not only revealed matters, but even matters that pertain to natural law. That it, which is to say, the church has doctrinal authority even over some stuff that you can actually know by reason. And this is one of those matters, he says. This is a matter of natural law. So when we get into the principles he's going to use, they are doctrinal, but that doesn't mean they're inaccessible to reason. So here's, here's how he gets into the argument, which is, um, as I say, somewhat philosophical in nature and yet being propounded uh, doctrinally by the church at the same time. His starting point is simply this doc doctrinal fact uh, and philosophical fact that man is a composite of spirit and body. We have to be careful here, right? We can easily misunderstand this. It's not that man is a spirit that inhabits a body. A man doesn't relate to his body the way a bulldozer operator relates to his bulldozer, but rather man is, you could call him an enfleshed soul. You know, it's, it's not a rational being within an animal, it's a rational animal. So when, when I say I do something, the I that I'm talking about is not just the soul, but the soul and the body. The I is a soul-body composite. That's his starting point. Why is that his starting point? Because marital love is especially stamped by this fact. So he, here he gets to his second principle. The second principle is simply this. There are different kinds of love. And today we have a lazy habit of speaking of love as though it's... it's <laughs> We've got bumper stickers that say love is love or all love is the same. Yeah, this is, this is, this is the way that we're getting it in the movies, uh, in traffic, you know, from the car in front of us. Um, the idea that one love differs from another love only in intensity. Like, well, maybe you love that person more than you love this person. But common experience is enough to show us that, in fact, there are different kinds of love. Um, the kind of love that you get, say, between friends is, in fact, not the same as the kind of love you get between brothers. And it may be that in one case the brotherly love is more intense, or in another case the, the love between friends is more intense. The intensity is not the difference. Uh, it's just a different kind of relationship and a different kind of love. The kind of love you get between brothers is in turn different from, say, the kind of love that ex exists between parents and children. There's a particular character to that love that's just not like other loves. Um, there's a kind of love that if you ever traveled abroad and been away for a long time and then you suddenly meet another American, you instantly have an affection for this person. And it's not the same kind of love you would have for one of your friends or for your brother or for your mom. It's, it's its own thing. And similarly, marital or conjugal love is a specific kind of love. So then Pope Paul VI sets out to say, what is it that makes marital love be a certain kind of love? It, well, it's a, it is especially stamped by that soul-body unity because marital love is the kind of love that seeks a loving one-flesh union. And then again, he's, he, he's immediately careful. We, we have to be careful because uh, we're not talking about, when we talk about seeking that one flesh union, we're not talking about a bodily drive, a sort of instinctive urge to have sex. Uh, we're talking about 
that the, the bodily element here is specified, it's made what it is by the spiritual element, the free will gift of self to the other. On the other hand, we also have to be careful and, and, and realize that f that spiritual element, that freely, free will gift of one spouse to the other is specified and made the kind of gift it is by the body. So the when one spouse gives him or herself to the other, he's giving, he, what he's doing is as a human being in freedom, seeking to become in a sense one organism with this other person. So what are the characteristics of this kind of love? What, how do you describe the love that's like that? Well, you can say a lot of things. You can say it's, it's uniquely total. Every kind of love wants to give to the other and in, in a sense even to give the self to the other if it's a friend. But here you're actually giving the body itself in a unique way. It's, it's total love. It's, it's permanent. It, it, it's, a, it's a love, this, this kind of love has to be the kind of love that's going to endure for the whole of life. It's unselfish. If you have, a, if you have someone who's using another person to gratify sexual desires, that's not marital love. Marital love in this soul-body composition is, is unselfish, loving the other for the other. But it's also obvious, the, the Pope's wants to maintain that along with those characteristics, the other thing you have to say about this kind of love is that it's procreative. It's fecund. When the thing you seek is one flesh union to be sort of one organism in this way, the thing you're seeking is the procreative union. And so and here, here's sort of the bottom line of the conclusion he reaches. Marital love is the kind of love it is because it is for the sake of procreating children. So the procreative element of marriage is actually definitive for the kind of love that goes into marriage. And so when we have someone who wants to pit the two against each other and say, I need birth control because I, want, I need to be free to, to, to engage in this act of love with my spouse, the Pope wants to say, actually, if you do that, you're contradicting the very kind of love you want to show. And uh, what consequences did Paul VI foresee uh, if the sexual act was decoupled from procreation? He foresaw some pragmatic consequences. Of course, the immediate thing he's, he's worried about is that this is an evil thing to do. But what sort of fallout can we expect? Well, right away he says, we all know, we all have enough experience to know how fragile we human beings are in matters sexual. If you, the easier you make it to sin, the more people will fall into sin. And so when you make it very easy for people to engage in sexual activity without consequences, then more and more young people are going to engage in sexual, sexual activity outside of marriage. And you're just going to have a general lowering of the standards of morality in our civilization, which is a big deal because we're talking about the stuff that affects the family, the stuff that affects the, the seedbed of civilization. But even within marriage, he, he foresaw, he was worried about the idea that once you decouple the sexual act from, it, from the procreative side of things, you're opening the door for men to more and more treat their wives as instruments for gratifying their own desires. Uh, when it becomes a, 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 um, 
something that is not only without practical consequence, but is more and more understood apart from the reality of family, then it becomes more and more just about the pleasure involved. And, uh, and, and he really was concerned about what were going to be the implications for women um, here. And going back to your first question, one of, his, one of the things going on in the world that he mentions is a, a, the surge of, I guess today we would call feminism, right? The, a, a new, um, he's trying to see all the positive elements, right? A, a new appreciation for the role of women in society and so on. Uh, so one of the pushes was that as women stepped out into the workforce, to be free to remain in the workforce, they had to not get pregnant. And so birth control was an important element in um, what was seen as a promotion of women's role in society. But, and abortion as well. And abortion as well, exactly. But the, the Pope is actually pointing out a contradiction here that in this push towards raising the dignity of women, he saw a danger of the, the, the abasing of women. I dare say that came to pass. Yes, I was going to say that when I first read this encyclical, and it was a long time ago, I read that part of it and it was jaw-dropping. I said, my gosh, this, this was a prophecy. It all came true. Yeah, and today we sort of live with the contradiction of uh, an enormous uh, verbal respect for the dignity of women uh, and the um, view that pornography is a basic human right. Mm -hmm. In the encyclical he writes, it is to be anticipated that perhaps not everyone will easily accept this particular teaching. Uh, that was also somewhat prophetic. <laughs> then he went on and said, Since the church did not make either of these laws, she cannot be their arbiter, only their guardian and interpreter. Then he wrote, In preserving intact the whole moral law, the church is convinced that she is contributing to the creation of a truly human civilization. Explain a little bit about his perspective in that. We have to understand that this was not a fun document for Paul VI to publish. As I had mentioned before, there was a huge excitement within the church that perhaps this was the moment to change the church's teaching. Uh, there had been a commission set up by his predecessor in the pontificate to study this issue, and, and he had um, worked with that commission as well. And word had leaked out the commission was actually going to recommend changing the church's approach on this issue. And so great was the excitement that priests began telling people in the confessional, oh, you know, go ahead, the Pope is going to say pretty soon it's okay. And so for him to have to publish this thing was like the parent who has to come in and actually have the difficult conversation with the teen. It was a hard thing to do. And uh, the aftermath was ugly for Paul VI. There, uh, uh, moral theologians... Um, rebelled. Uh, a bunch of them took out a full-page ad in a major newspaper in the United States expressing the, their disagreement with this uh, actually authoritative papal intervention. Um, so this was not what Paul VI would have put on his wish list for the new year in, in 1968. He didn't want to do this, but he had to because he doesn't own morality. He doesn't own Jesus Christ's gospel. He's just the custodian, right? He's like the guy at the museum who tells people to stay back from the exhibit and sweeps the floors. It's not his stuff. Uh, he, so he, he can't just decide, well, I guess if everybody really wants this, we'll change what we're doing. He, ha he just has to take care of what was entrusted to him, even if, as it has turned out to be the case, uh, it pretty much ruins his year. 
he knows, like the parent who has to have the difficult conversation with the teenager, perhaps about alcohol or perhaps about uh, extramarital sexual activity, he knows that in the end, by sticking to what Jesus Christ gave us, we're actually going to promote not just Catholicism, not just good religion, but a healthy humanity, that Jesus Christ made it possible not just for human beings to do the supernatural, to live by grace, but for human beings to fulfill the whole of the natural law and to be fully human once more. So there were, there were elements of basic human dignity that had been eclipsed by sin. And so the, the Pope is convinced that if, if he does his job and he's faithful and he tells people, stand back from the exhibit, excuse me while I clean the floor, no, you can't do this immoral thing. If he's faithful to his job, he is contributing to humanity actually being what it was made to be at the end of the day. That's a wonderful word for our friends who are marching in the various marches for life around the country this year. They too are some, taking on a sometimes unpleasant role. The fundamental human right, the presupposition of every other right, said Pope Benedict XVI, is the right to life itself. This is true of life from the moment of conception until its natural end. Abortion, consequently, cannot be a human right. It is the very opposite. It is a deep wound in society. The annual March for Life is a yearly reminder of that wound and the need to stop the violence that causes the wound so that society may heal. Marching for life, or if unable to march, praying for life, is work that, in Pope Paul's words, contribute to the creation of a truly human civilization. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.